We've been uh, studying in Jeremiah, and so we're going to be looking in Jeremiah chapter 9. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, either on your phone or on, uh, there's Bibles under the seat in front of you. Maybe some of you have it memorized. (laughs) But I want to talk to you about... um, the seriousness of the gospel and so forth, and and judgment. And to get us started, I want to tell you a story about a young man named John who received a parrot as a gift. And the parrot had a bad attitude and even a worse vocabulary. Every word out of the bird's mouth was rude, obnoxious, and laced with profanity. And John tried everything to change the bird's attitude consistently by saying polite words and playing soft music, anything that he could do, anything he could think of to clean up the bird's vocabulary. And finally, John was fed up, and he yelled at the parrot, and the parrot yelled back. And then John shook the parrot, and the parrot got even angrier and ruder. And so John, in desperation, threw up his hands, grabbed the bird, put him in the freezer. And for a few minutes, the parrot squawked and kicked and screamed, and then suddenly there was total quiet. Not a peep was heard for over a minute, and John was concerned that maybe uh, he had gone too far. So he quickly opened the door to the freezer. The parrot calmly stepped out onto John's outstretched hand, And said, I believe I may have offended you with my rude language and actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for any inappropriate transgressions. And I fully intend to do everything I can to correct my rude and unforgivable behavior. Well, John was stunned. He was so taken back by the bird's sudden change of attitude. And as he was about to ask the parrot why he had made such a dramatic change, the parrot said, may I ask what the turkey did? (laughs) So, all kidding aside, you'll probably not remember anything else I say, but our text today actually has a very different emotional feel than that. It's the sorrow that's expressed by the prophet Jeremiah and the frustration and the resolve of God Almighty with reference to what's going to happen to his covenant people. As I said last week, sin really is no laughing matter. The treachery of sin and its horrific addictive effect is something that should really bring terror to us. We are going to witness in this chapter a dialogue between God and Jeremiah that began back in chapter 8. And it's interesting that both Jeremiah and Habakkuk, the other prophet, had a similar experience in that their recorded prophecies came across in kind of a give-and-take manner, like Jeremiah speaks and God speaks, and there's this dialogue that takes place between the two. And I would hope that we could learn that this kind of relationship is possible. 
even for us today as believers, because we have the Spirit of God residing within us. The Holy Spirit is the gift from the Father that Jesus promised to all who would be in his covenant. There is nothing more that God could give. There's nothing more that God would rather give than the gift of himself. And he does so in response when we give the gift of ourselves. And that's what every true relationship consists of. A full commitment one to another. And so I want to begin with Jeremiah's lament. He says, oh, that my head were a spring of waters and my eyes a fountain of tears. Then I would weep day and night for my people who have been slaughtered. Oh, that I had a place in the desert that I could run to. A a haven for travelers. And then I could leave my people, for they are all adulterous and treacherous. I want you to notice two things that Jeremiah, first of all, he grieves over the sins of the people. But there's also a humanness to him. And that is he has a desire just to flee and go somewhere else, just to get away from it all. Anybody ever feel that way? Sometimes I look at what's going on in our country and I wish there was some place we could go. Like the pilgrims of England and just start it all over again somewhere else. But there is no such place. So what is the alternative? Well, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He often discloses his emotions throughout this book. He's an excellent case study of what a believer should feel when we take our role as priests in the new covenant seriously. We are called upon to be a kingdom of priests to God. Peter said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Is that who we are? It means that we take the role of intercessor for lost people and pray for them. It means that we take the message of God to those who need to hear it. As in Jeremiah's case, there were few that believed his message. But that didn't stop him. There were undoubtedly those who did believe, though. I think one of them was a young man by the name of Daniel, who was probably around 17 years of age when, in, when he went into captivity taken into exile by the Babylonians. Jeremiah preached and said, don't resist them, go with them. And Daniel did. And while he was in exile, Daniel no doubt had received a copy of Jeremiah's prophecies or perhaps remembered hearing Jeremiah preach to the people that the exile would be 70 years long. 
And in Daniel chapter 9, he prayed to God and he brought this fact to God in confession and intercession for the nation. Now, 70 years had taken, had transpired. Daniel is in, at that time, the kingdom of Persia. And he's praying for his people. And in Daniel 9, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Hasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. You see, Daniel went to intercession for his people on the basis of God's promise. When we pray for people, do we trust God to do what he says he will do? Oftentimes we plead and beg with God as though he has to have his mind changed about his desire to bring people to himself. There's nothing God would rather do than to bring people to himself. As I've said before, I'll say again, we are not praying to a bad God who has to have his mind changed so that he will love good people. But rather we're praying to a good God on behalf of bad people, that God in his mercy would reveal himself to them. This is an important part of intercession. And God responds with Jeremiah's frustration in this way with the people. The Eternal One says, With tongues bent like bows, they shoot their lies at one another. Truth does not win out in this land. Deceit always seems to triumph. One evil leads to another because they don't know who I am. Let everyone be careful of his neighbor and think twice before he trusts his brothers. For every brother is ready to cheat and deceive. Every neighbor is prepared to lie when it suits him. In this land of liars, friends have no misgivings about deceiving one another. No one even thinks to tell the truth. They've trained their tongues to utter lies. They wear themselves out with their sinning. And in Jeremiah, he says to Jeremiah, you live in a place where deception is assumed. And their lies pile up and they refuse to acknowledge me. It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul makes similar statements in Romans 3 when he quoted from the Psalms and he said, there is none righteous No, not one. They have all together become worthless. And the grave difficulty in today's world is that it is extremely offensive, especially for people to hear that they are wicked. All of us, at one time or another, justified our sins as minor discrepancies or hiccups in our moral uprightness. It is human nature to compare ourselves with other people, especially when we judge people to be worse than ourselves. 
But the good news is that we don't have to be the ones to bluntly affront people with the truth. There are winsome ways to expose people to their own sin, removing the element of comparison and helping them to look to their own memory and their own conscience. The Holy Spirit is the one who will bring strong conviction needed. The Holy Spirit will do what we cannot do, nor should we try. It's not our place or a purpose to convict people. When we do in our own flesh, we only ruin what God alone is able to do. But we may ask the question to someone, do you believe you're a sinner? And they might minimize the answer. Or there might be another way to ask it. Rightly, do you think you're a good person? Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever told a lie? Oh, well then how many lies do you have to tell before you become a liar? That would be right. And so the person already now is under their conscience. Yes, I am a liar. You could follow that with other things, such as have you ever uh, stolen anything? Have you ever cheated? And as people acknowledge, yes, I've done that, then suddenly their righteousness evaporates because it's no longer a comparison between them and another person. But it's their own conscience that bears witness. And then the Holy Spirit brings his work to bear in their heart. You know, the Bible paints all humanity into a very bleak picture of selfishness and wickedness. The Holy Spirit will, as he did with each one of us, if you think about yourself. He's going to bring that reality to bear. He will... Speak into their hearts. I mean, if you're a Christian today, you remember the day you woke up and you went, whoa, there is a problem with me. And it's essential that when we pray for people, we pray that God will bring that guilt to their understanding. Now, God speaks some more in Jeremiah 9, beginning at verse 7. This is what the eternal commander of heaven's armies has to say. The eternal one says, watch, I will refine this nation and put them to the test. What else can I do with my people? Their tongues are like deadly arrows. They speak such lies. Each one leads his neighbor with kind words into a trap that has already been set. Should I not punish them for what they do? Should I not repay a nation that acts in this way? And then notice what God says. I will refine this nation and put them to the test. The New American Standard says, I will assay them. An assayer is a person that tests mineral deposits to determine what's there and how much is there and how pure it is. And God is saying that the judgment to come upon the nation would have the quality of refining them. And in the current state, his test results, but they're full of lies and deceit and unfaithfulness. But after the exile, there would be a different people who would return to the land. There was a man who was praying with his pastor one time at the altar, and he was praying, and he 
had been saying this over and over again. He said, Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. And finally, the pastor prayed for him and said, kill the spider, Lord. Kill the spider. We need that kind of self-examination in our own lives, don't we? When we intercede for other people, we need to ask ourselves, where am I in my relationship with the Lord? It's a time of refinement and purity for us. God uses his judgments in our lives to refine us. And sometimes the hardships we endure, they're not necessarily the result of sin. Sometimes we will endure persecution. We might endure the normal experiences of ill health or lean finances. But sometimes he has to judge us when we are in sin. But his purpose is always to redeem, to refine. When our son was growing up, he was always baffled by the way that he would get caught every time he did mischief. He could not understand how we found these things out. We told him that it was the love of God that made it possible for him to get caught. And he couldn't quite, you know, he was a young kid. He couldn't understand how God's love got him in trouble. He would be found out and consequences would be given because he was loved. It was neither God's intention nor ours to allow him to ruin himself in sin by looking the other way. If we refuse to heed God, the results would be catastrophic. For the Bible says it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so for us, as we prepare ourselves to pray for others, what about the gospel for us? The gospel to cleanse our minds and our hearts. The power of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction into our own lives and the power for us to change. If you're in a place where you feel like, I just can't change, I've, been, I've tried, I have tried so hard. Let me tell you, the harder you try, the worse it is. But when you trust, he will be there. And when temptation does come, there will be something saying, I'm here. And if you would acknowledge him and say, Lord, I need your help. I'm, I'm weak, but I'm trusting you to change my attitude and my outlook and help me through this time. I guarantee you, I've had that experience in my own life, struggling with things and Finally coming to a place of God, you alone can do it, and he does. Not without my commitment to it. Not without my willingness to obey, but when I obey him and when I yield myself to him and say no to me, there's power. And that's the power others need. We can't judge the lost and say, man, I wish they'd straighten up. They can't. Any more than you or I can change without the Spirit of God within us.
Alexis de Tocqueville was a, a writer, and he was writing about democracy in America. And he wrote, Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and her power. America is great because America is good. And if America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but this was written many, many years ago. And what he noticed is it wasn't the Constitution that made America great. And it wasn't our military might that he noticed was the key. It wasn't the financial power of this nation. But he said the pulpits in the churches were aflame with the righteousness of God. Teaching people to turn from their sin and turn to God. And he said that, that alone is what made America great. This was a Frenchman who looking in France after their revolution, there was no change in the hearts of the people. And he wanted to know the difference between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. And he said it's in the gospel. Now Jeremiah would go on to say in verse 10, I will weep bitterly for the mountains of my homeland and grieve for the death of her wild meadows. For they have become a silent wasteland where no one dares to travel. Pastures once filled with lowing cattle now are empty and lifeless. All the animals have fled. Even the birds have left the sky. And God says, I will leave Jerusalem in ruins. Her rubble will be the haunt of jackals. I will wreak the same havoc on the cities of Judah. No person will be found there. And then Jeremiah says, well, who's wise enough to take all this in? Who has heard the eternal speak and can explain his ways to others? Can anyone say why this land has been ruined and left a wasteland, a desert, where no one dares to travel? It's left as rhetorical questions, but the answer is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so the eternal commander of heaven's armies says this. He says, think it over and summon the mourners. Send for the women who will chant the dirge that they may come. Let them come and be quick about it. Weep and wail that our eyes may fill with tears and streak down our faces. You know, it was a custom in the Middle East for people to have professional mourners. People who were hired to come when somebody had died and they would weep and they would wail. But in this sense, God's people... The grief does not need to be exposed by people mourning, for the people will be overcome with sorrow for their own desolation and their own homeland. And so God says, listen to the voice of sorrow weeping in Zion itself. 
We are ruined. All that remains for us is great shame. Now we must leave this land that was ours. They have torn down our houses. And so Jeremiah says, listen now, women of Judah, to the word of the eternal. Mark his words well. It is time to teach your daughters how to mourn. Time to teach your neighbors the song of lament. For death has found us all. It has crept in through our windows and slipped past our defenses. It has cast down our children in the streets and our young men in the public squares. Death has found us all. And tell everyone, tell everyone what the Eternal One has said. The dead bodies of men will fall like dung in the open field. Corpses will lie on the ground like grain out in the harvest. But on this day, there will be no one to gather the dead. And so the conclusion is let not the wise boast about their wisdom, nor the mighty in their strength, nor the rich in their wealth. Whoever boasts must boast in this one thing, that he understands and knows me. Indeed, I am the eternal one who acts faithfully and exercises justice and righteousness on the earth. These are the things that delight me. Let me ask you a question. What is your boast? Are you boasting in riches? Are you boasting in your smarts? Are you boasting in your bank account? Are you boasting in your relationships? Are you boasting in how strong you are? And God says there's only one thing that's worth boasting about, and that's that you know me. Faith is a relationship. And so this whole chapter is really sorrowful, isn't it? And I don't want us as believers to walk around with a long face, but I do want us when we engage in prayer for the lost to weep for their condition, to weep for our nation, that we might enter into the same sorrows that God feels for the wickedness and lostness of people. There's joy for us. There's joy in that we know the gospel. But there also needs to be an earnestness in our lives that propels us to intercede for people who need the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that intercession, moving ourselves to be a willing answer to that prayer. And so God says, let not the wise boast in their wisdom, nor the mighty in their strength, nor the rich in their wealth. Whoever boasts must boast in this, that he understands and knows me. I am the eternal one. And so as we look at this verse, there is no one wise enough to save themselves from the penalty of sin. There is no one strong enough to withstand the power of God. There is no one wealthy enough to buy their redemption. There's no money enough to have that influence. There's only one remedy for sin and judgment, and that is to know the Lord. And the only way to know him is to repent, believe the gospel, and by surrender of one's life and will to Jesus as Lord and Savior, then receive the Holy Spirit who makes that person known to God, and God known to them. It is about an experiential relationship with God. You may be here today and you may have said, well, you know, when I was six or seven or nine or whatever, I was in a vacation Bible school or a Sunday school class, and I prayed the sinner's prayer. I'm okay. I want you to know 
that that may have been one thing that happened in your past, but there is nothing if you have not experienced the regeneration of the Spirit and you know God. Because many people pray the prayer because they're desperate, they don't want to go to hell, but not because they realize who they really are and the depth of what they need from God in salvation and repentance. There's so many people in our country today that name the name of Jesus, who prayed a prayer somewhere along the line, who do not know him. And even Jesus himself said there would be some in that day who cast out demons in his name and who heal people uh, in his name and so forth. And when they stand before the judgment seat, the Lord himself will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because it's not in what you can do in ministry, it's who you are in Christ. And if you're known by him and you know him, and that is an experiential relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you don't know that, you don't have it. And if you say, well, I'm not sure, you don't have it. Because you either know that you know or you don't. And if you don't, today is a day you can settle that. And it's not by just a prayer, but it's by repentance, recognizing your own sin before God. You've lied, you've cheated, you've stolen, you've blasphemed, you've committed adultery, you have committed idolatry, you've broken every one of the Ten Commandments. You're not a good person. But you're the kind of person Jesus came to die for. Because the Apostle Paul said it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So if you're a sinner, that's who Jesus died for. He died for you. The day is coming when I will set all things right with people, says the Lord. I will punish those who are circumcised in body but not in their hearts. The people of Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, and Moab, and all who live in the desert and clip the corners of their hair, all these nations are really uncircumcised. And all of Israel is uncircumcised where it matters, and that is in the heart. You see, it's a heart issue. It's not what you look like on the outside. It's not how you perform on the outside. It is a matter of whether you have been given a new heart by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So God promises he'll set all things right. This is the hope. This is our future. There will be punishment for those who refuse, but there will be the reconciling of all things through Jesus Christ. That he has to begin with you. And if you are reconciled to him, your hope is that he will reconcile all things. So I would ask you, where is your heart today? Would you pray with me? Each one, just in your own place right now, where you are. This isn't a time for looking at others or wondering how things are going. This is just you and God right now.
I'm not going to ask you to pray a sinner's prayer. What I'm going to ask you to do is if you are troubled in your heart where you are with God, that you would cry out to Him today. That you would ask Him. Reveal Himself to you. To show you the depth of your need, to show you the depth of your sin. But to show you that He is greater still. He can forgive no matter what you've done. And if you cannot forgive yourself, that you would even repent there and say, God, if you can forgive me, then I have to because I'm not God. So that you can let go of anything that's holding you in the grip of doubt and fear. But it's a matter of believing. Just believing. Is he who he says he is? If he is, he's worth you giving your life to him. So do so. Amen.